morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Mr. Vitort, how are you doing? I am well, but I must apologize to you both. I've been a fool. Uh oh. I did not bring my book. I literally <laughs> finished reading it this morning. <laughs> and I'm very frustrated. He gets his book to the first day. I know it. No, it's because, so I don't like putting paperback books in my backpack because I hate busting up the corners. Uh, so I'm forced into carrying them like an animal. And then, I, just yes, <laughs> then I realized like I forgot my animal. wallet somewhere. So I had to go and scour for that. I found the wallet, but in my mad blitz at the door, forgot to grab the book off the countertop. Right. I borrowed my copy today. Oh, it's just frustrating. I, I just hope you have the same underline. Same yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was what was frustrating. <laughs> Which, yeah, I'm grateful that I procrastinated so long that I had to read the second half of it today. Yeah, so that now it's actually fresher. Yeah, that's good. I'm just actually thinking because like I read it earlier la or late last week. <laughs> what a fool. I know. Like, <laughs> and, then, and then I've been like, <laughs> yeah, I like, kind of like both knocked of it out. Fools. <laughs> I knocked it out right away. I'm like, wait, what did I, what, what did both I? of you are fools. I read it a couple days. Days ago and brought my book and Dang it. I did bring my this book is and I the master. This is in Kung Fu Panda, the Oogway guy. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is what you learn when you've uh, when you've been uh, to seminary. So, um, you know, for those of us who brought us who brought oh, our books. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I guess I like whenever discussing a book to just start with general uh, thoughts about it, right? So, um, having read, we did the introduction and chapter one for today. General thoughts. Uh, what? Uh, I'll just start. The first thing I underlined is right at the first page of the introduction. Covenant is the word God uses to describe His relationship with His people. I think we think of covenant in like, oh, that's like an Old Testament term. A lot of times, I mm -hmm. guess in my Again, growing up in kind of non-denominational world, I think uh, I've kind of thought as covenant is like, oh, that's an Old Testament word. Okay, yeah, I see it in the New Testament, um, but you know, it doesn't really apply today. But I think that simple, straightforward definition—one, it's biblical. I think I think it has biblical merit, and two, I think it just clearly defines what we're talking about when we talk about covenants, right? It's just a way to describe. It's the word we use for the how God relates to His people. Yeah, at times, I underline the same line. Um, at times, I guess we talk about marriage covenants, mm -hmm. uh, but not a lot. I think maybe you yeah. hear about like housing covenants mm -hmm. uh, or, or something like that, but it's not necessarily a term that we use all the time. Let the record show that mine probably is underlined there. So that's, <laughs> mine is, oh, and you know what, I probably have the surrounding lines as well because I'm such a great highlighter. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, my uh, initial impressions, I was appreciative. Um, yeah, our, our friend Mr. Jaunty Rhodes did not write in such a way that would um, alienate an uneducated audience. Um, very uh, easy to follow, and I appreciated some of his like um, analogies or metaphors were really helpful for me. Um, I'm trying to think without seeing them on the page, but that there were a few that I really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, one of them, so right in the introduction, he uses the example of uh, different melodies coming together right. into harmony as an example of what covenant does and understanding the covenants, um, that it, it has the ability to bring all of those different pieces together mm -hmm. uh, from the whole of Scripture. So that you're not left with something that's just totally discombobulated, you know, discombobulated yep. disjunctive. Like it's 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 actually one whole. Um, we have the scripture as one whole 
thing uh, that's made to be one story uh, the whole way through. And this is one way that you can actually see that. Whereas I do think the way that a lot of uh, the time we approach scripture is disjunctive. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, okay, this is over there, this is over here. They don't really meet, they don't really connect. Uh, And so I think that's super helpful. And it's what, I mean, you know, when you read, if you read the New Testament and you see how the apostles use the Old Testament, you see that they don't see there being a massive change, uh, a mass, I mean, there's change, but um, they they don't see a massive uh, disjunction between what they believe and what was before. They just see Christ as the fulfillment of it all. Um, And so they're able to connect it all and use it all and and read it all and preach from it. And and it's all part of what they're doing. Um, And so we should be in the same place. Yeah, and Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And like, what is he talking about there? The Old Testament. And, you know, hopefully not a lot of us are full-blown Andy Stanley and unhitching the Old Testament. But in a way, like you said, I think we think there's like this disconnect with, okay, yeah, the Old Testament's there, but, you know, Christ's new covenant. And yes, Christ's new covenant, but the Old Testament was, you know, looking forward to that. It was, hey, this is coming, this is coming. And then it was fulfilled in the fullness of time when Jesus was revealed. So, like you said, there is that connectedness there. Hmm. Yeah, I was intrigued um, where he starts in chapter one is with with the Adamic covenant, um, or the covenant of works. And, uh, but even before that, the way that he gets you into it is uh, by pointing out that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, mm, um, at yeah, the time of the Last Supper, last supper. Um, he specifically talks about the blood of the covenant um, as he institutes the Lord's Supper. And I thought it was an interesting way to get people in by saying, look, Jesus, on this night as he is preparing his disciples for his death mm-hmm. and not just preparing um, those disciples not just the 12 um, not just the apostles but also preparing us in that way right mm-hmm. teaching us uh, what we're to do um, he uses this idea right I mean he he connects it to the idea of covenant by mm-hmm. saying this is the new covenant in my blood and so uh, I thought that that was a really helpful way to uh, maybe get people in that maybe haven't thought you know like you're saying we don't maybe use covenant. I mean, if you're Presbyterian, we use it all the time. And so we're, <laughs> it's the name of your church. <laughs> I mean, it is literally the name of my church. And uh, so we, like, we use the word a lot. But like in general evangelical circles, it's not maybe the yeah. most common term mm-hmm. um, that comes up for, for how we describe things. Yeah. And so to just point that out, I think can be really, really helpful. Mm. Yeah. Well, here I've underlined on page 16. Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them you know, I think we have the same idea here. <laughs> we have One all the same stories. <laughs> we'll just assume Chase has all the same things. Mine are <laughs> equal and better. <laughs> equal <me>. and better. <laughs> but uh, to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework before exploding into the full color mm. in the coming of Christ. There's a syst- like again. There's a systematic, you know, theme going on throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament in the fu- um, you know in the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the coming of Christ and then then obviously what the church does after that, you know, is recording the rest of the New Testament. And, um, right. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great way of kind of showing, look, it's all one cohesive story. Yeah. Uh, it's not disconnected. It's it's all driving home 
to the same point. And without it, like without it, you're actually really missing something. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's just yeah. one way um, that is helpful or something mm -hmm. like that, um, one way among many, mm -hmm. but it's actually central to understanding mm -hmm. the rest of scripture. So um, he quotes J.I. Packer, and it's just a solid shout out to J.I. Packer. Um, you know, if you haven't read Knowing God, you gotta do that. But um, he says this, um, or quotes J.I. Packer saying this, the gospel of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. And the word of God is not properly understood till it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Um, and that's true. I mean, that is, that is in fact the case, that um, apart from this, you're actually uh, really missing out. Mm -hmm. You're missing out on a huge part of what scripture is speaking about. Yeah. Isn't that, there's a quote slightly below that where he summarizes there are three things I think he says that you can't fully understand without covenantalism. Was those two and what was the other one? The God, gospel, and scripture. God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the reality of God is not properly understood until it's viewed within a covenantal frame. I think that's huge too because it's like, this is how God works. Mm -hmm. This is, this is characteristic of God that he relates to human beings covenantally. Um, not disjoined, not disconnected, but he makes covenants with people. Yeah, like literally yeah. we only know him because, because he, makes he does this, right? Yeah, because that's exactly. how he relates to us. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, yeah we wouldn't know anything about God you know, apart from his him making covenants with people. And he's and he's the originator of the covenant too. It's not as if, you know, we found him and we're like, all right, let's make a let's strike a bargain. Here. Yeah, yeah, strike a bargain. Yeah. It's like he comes to he comes to human beings and he says, This is the deal. You know. And here's blessings if you keep it and here's curses if you don't keep it. And then you kind of just say, Yes <laughs> or you rebel and you face the consequences. So Yeah, I appreciate it. Just slightly further on in the chapter, he talks about um, the Adamic covenant and whether or not it's an issue that it doesn't use the term covenant in um, the initial Genesis account there. Um, I appreciate I think he gives like four reasons for that, which all yes. of them were compelling, particularly the first one I enjoyed. Um, but I'm curious to either of you, have either of you, like what's the, the most compelling argument you've heard against recognizing the Adamic covenant as a covenant? I know he he's suggest one person calls it an administration and like tongue in cheek makes fun of them. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah are there good arguments? Um, that's a good question. I, I do think that um, the primary argument is typically that it's not, um, if you just look at Genesis one and two, it is not as explicitly covenantal as maybe you have with you know, God and Abraham, mm -hmm. for instance. Yep. You know, I will make my covenant with you, and this, you know. It's subtle. It, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so I think that that's probably what is most often um, brought up as mm -hmm. uh, saying that, okay, well, this is different in some way. Um, and there are obviously, there are differences um, with the covenant of works uh, because of just the nature of it, right? Because you're dealing with pre-fall man, mm -hmm. um, it, it is different. However, um, you do still have, like he points out, all of the elements of other covenants really are there, right. even if it's not as explicit. And, um, you know, it, it's always been most helpful for me to uh, see that, in fact, uh, we do have, for instance, in uh, Hosea 6, yeah, the mention of the covenant, covenant with Adam. Yeah. 
And so, and it's the covenant that he transgressed, mm-hmm. right? So it, this isn't speaking about something after the fact. Right. Um, this is specifically talking about um, what mm-hmm. God did with Adam in the garden before he and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. And so yeah. that just, in my mind, that basically seals it. Okay, this is a covenant. Yeah. In what ways is this different from other covenants in Scripture? That can be discussed. But at this point, I think we have to say, oh, yeah. this is, it's covenantal in structure. And again, that's important because it means that this is not just how God relates to us because of the fall, as if there was something like some other way before. Mm-hmm. Actually, God relates to people, to his creation, covenantally, period. Like, that's how we know him. That's how mm-hmm. we come to know him. Yeah. And just goes to show, God's unchanging, right? This is how he does things. And this is how he will continue to do things. This is how he relates to human beings. And this is how he continues to relate to human beings. Not as a reaction, again, to the fall, like you said. But as this is how I relate. Now, obviously, the human condition changed after the fall. But still, the way he related to people through covenants um, continued. And he continues to this day. And kind of like... On page 18, he has the definitions of, you know, covenants agreement between God and human beings. Where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Well, we see that in Genesis, you know, in the first few chapters of Genesis, right? It's pretty much assumed, like, hey, you know, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, you know, take dominion over it. And things will continue as they are in, you know, this glorious state. But if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. So there's the condition, right? You either continue and do what I've commanded you to do or you you break the covenant, you violate it, and there's curses. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a consequence for that. Versus, and then we see that, you know, when the law is given too. Like there's the, you know, blessings if you keep the law and then there's the curses if you keep the, if you break the law. Hmm. I had never heard the distinction of covenants of uh, works and or covenant of works and covenants of grace prior to reading the Christ of the Covenants. Um, parenthetically, in this book, Rhodes alludes to, it's at the bottom one of the pages, he alludes to some other theologians have advocated on behalf of changing the nomenclature there, so you're no longer using works and grace, but what is it, creation and redemption, I think, is one of the more popular ones, yep. which is what Robertson in this book, Christ of the Covenants, advocates for. He actually is one of those people. Um, do either of you see any issues? So he's, Rhodes just says, I, I use this approach because it's what's most common. Um, is it more helpful to use other terms because it makes more sense? Do we like works and grace? Help me understand how you thought through that. Yeah, um, some people use uh, covenant of life as well mm-hmm. uh, because that was, you know, the the nature of the covenant. Um, I don't know that I feel like I have a dog in the fight, <laughs> and I don't know if there's much of a fight even. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be some, but it's more like uh, se- just semantics. Yeah, it's just, semantics. Yeah. Like, uh, could somebody hear covenant of works and misunderstand it in some way? Um, maybe, uh, but. I don't, I guess I don't personally feel that any of them are particularly um, the most helpful. Covenant of Works is just the more traditional term uh, that has been used, at least in uh, the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I use it, because it's it's what everybody recognizes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but obviously, no matter what you use, you have to define your terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we have such an aversion to that because we know it's by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone that we're saved. So when people hear like covenant of works, they right. kind of get you know a little nervous. But you know, just 
is a good question, Chase, but just thinking about it now, I, I like the term because it shows us that active obedience was needed for our righteousness. Mm -hmm. Now, when Adam was in a state of sinlessness, he could accomplish, you know, you know, righteousness by his works because he was not marred by sin yet. And I think that's kind of the whole point he's making is like Adam was in this state. But then when he fell, human beings became totally enabled, unable to be righteous by what they did. But we still needed someone's active righteousness and active obedience. And that comes through Jesus Christ. I think it was R.C. Sproul once said that we're saved by works, just not our own. It's the works of Christ. So the, the works were still needed. The fact of the matter is, is humans in and of themselves became unable to do it yeah. after the fall of Adam. Which I, I think Mr. Jonte Rhodes kind of talks about here in this first chapter. Yeah. It was, was kind of like a, you know, eye-opener for me. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a good point. Like, if Adam would have continued, obviously we know that if Adam would have continued, he, mm -hmm. was, he was righteous by what he did because he had not been marred by sin. But he had the ability to sin, which right. we see that he did. He was able to sin. He was able to sin. <clears throat> yeah, this is, um, uh, Augustine has uh, the distinction that he makes, uh, basically, you know, of of man in the pre-fall state, post-fall, uh, post-redemption, and then in the state of glory, um, where he, you know, uh, says that, you know, man in his pre-fall state was, uh, was passe peccari, it was possible for him to sin. Um, mm -hmm. After the fall, uh, man in the sin nature, it is uh, non passe non peccari, right? It's not possible that he not sin. Um, he he will sin. He yeah. is sin. <laughs> yeah. um, everything not done by faith is sin. So, um, but then in the state of redemption, as we've been redeemed and as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, um, it's now um, passe non peccare. It's possible not to sin. Not that you can be perfect in this life, but it is possible to live mm -hmm. in a way that pleases God. Yes. Again, by faith and um, only through. Uh, the righteousness of Christ, but you can do things that please God now, um, mm -hmm. even if you won't do it perfectly. But the ideal state, the state that we're um, going to be in in glory, mm -hmm. is uh, non posse peccare, right? Not it's not possible to sin. Mm -hmm. um, and Rhodes talks about how that really is yeah. the ideal mm -hmm. um, that yeah. we want because <clears throat> that is better than we're left in this situation like Adam, where you know he may or may right. not sin. Um, there's a lot of speculation, you know, and it's kind of fun to speculate about um, about Adam and the garden and of the time that he's in pre-fall. Um, it seems to me that it he probably fell basically right away. I don't think that, you know, Adam was in the garden a long time and then fell. I think this all happened, you know, um, basically right from the start. Um, some have thought, you know, this must have been literally on the Sabbath day, on the, like, on the day that God rests, this is when uh, Satan comes, and so it's literally the seventh day um, that Adam and Eve uh, fall. I don't know. I mean, you can't, I don't know if you can, you know, dogmatically, dogmatically yeah, say that. Yeah. I think it's interesting mm -hmm. to at least think through and, and uh, think about, but I don't think it was super long, but it is interesting to think about the nature of Adam and um, whether or not God was going to leave him in this state of always possibly being able to sin, sure. or whether or not after, obviously we know that the plan of God was always uh, for Christ to come, so it, it, it was always in his plan that yeah. the fall would take place, but um, but it is interesting to think, just in terms of uh, maybe teleology, okay, if, if 
pre-fall man, which, you know, um, Christ, you know, uh, takes on in a sense. He mm-hmm. becomes the new Adam. Yep. Um, if he had continued in this state, um, would there have been a point at some point where God does just put him in the place of no longer uh, being able to sin, right? Is, yeah. there, is there a time when that would have been removed um, and even that, you know, the prohibition that he's given be removed? I don't know. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, I think, just interesting. Yeah. I enjoy speculating. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I don't want to do it too much, but... <laughs> Um, update on Chase's picture of not having a book. I, through my superior hacking skills, was able to obtain an electronic version of it via <laughs> a website uh, locally known as Amazon Prime's preview feature on the book. So I'm now able I to. I got the first chapter. Yeah, they do have the first chapter. They don't have my highlights, which is frustrating, so hopefully they can update that. But um, no, yeah, I'm looking at the page where he talks about, he gives those two analogies where he talks about the soccer player and jumping out of the plane and like, wouldn't it be a whole lot better as the soccer player taking that penalty pit kick, excuse me, to know that. Not only can you possibly make the goal, but you absolutely can't miss it. You are unable like, yep. to miss, yeah. That was great. That's on the same page that they also yeah. talk about, like, um, what we mean when we use the term perfect describing the Garden of Eden. And I'd never considered this before. Yeah. This was a very I was going to ask you guys, what do you think about that? So he talks yeah. about the, the idea of perfection in the Garden and, mm-hmm. and what that really means. Um, so, yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah. Makes um, a ton of sense. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was, I mean, again, he, he defined his terms so... So we under, so we're on the same page. He didn't just say it wasn't perfect because he had to continue to subdue it. He like he kind of defines it and it's like it was sinless, absolutely, but yet there was still work to be done. Mm-hmm. Like I really like how he talked about God didn't put Adam in the garden, and it was just meant to be this museum, right? Where mm-hmm. he just I keeps all the pieces, yes. all the artifacts as they are. Yeah. No, it was there was work to be done. There was you know. The earth was to be subdued and to take dominion, so it was sinless. But it wasn't. There was still work to be done to get it to where mm-hmm. it needed to be. And I think, and again, he, like I said, he defines his terms very well and kind of clarifies that very well, which which was very helpful for me because it's like, oh yeah, like there there wasn't there was a purpose, like there was real, genuine work that had to be done before the fall. Yeah. It wasn't. Again, he wasn't just like keeping everything. As it is, he was cultivating, he was subduing, he was taking dominion. They were to be fruitful and multiplied. And, you know, even pre-fall, I imagine child-rearing is, was, is, was going to be work. It was absolutely going to be work. You know, obviously, it didn't come with any of the problems that we see in our family life now of, you know, sin and strife and obviously the pain in childbearing. That was part of the curse. But, um, but yeah, there were still things to be done. So I think, I think how he defines... You know, perfection and clarifying that yes, it was perfect in the sense that it was sinless, but yet the, it wasn't where it needed to be because Adam and Eve had to work to do. Yeah, yeah sometimes um, theologians have used the, the idea of, you know, Adam and Eve are, are created in a state of innocence, mm-hmm. right, to, to get across the same idea because we, we use the term perfect in terms of like moral perfection Mm -hmm. Um, but really they were created in in a sense in a state of not infancy but Mm -hmm. um, but in a sense as children that were supposed to grow and learn and then take on these things that they were um, given to do Um, not that they were children right Um, they could do things right away right they're created as as full-grown people but they're um, they're they're in that state of you know in a sense of 
there is room for them to grow and, mm-hmm. and necessity for them to grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and it's kind of, you know, when we, we see in the Gospels that when Jesus, right, he went through all the stages of human development. Mm-hmm. And Jesus grew in yeah, wisdom, he was, and stature, yeah, yeah, and, and favor with God and man. With favor with God and man. So we say Jesus was morally, you know, perfect. He never sinned. He was not born in sin. Um, but yet there was still a process that needed to take place. And, you know, I think it's in Hebrews it talks about he needed to learn obedience through suffering. Like, mm-hmm. there were still things that needed, like, Jesus had to go through. Right, according to his human nature. Yeah, according to things. his human nature. Right. Yeah, but again, we want to make that clarification. But, but, that, but the fact yeah. that that is, I yeah. think maybe you're getting at, so mm-hmm. I, maybe I'm cutting you off. But no, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> shows that Christ in his human nature, though he was uh, innocent, yeah. as a, you know, as in, uh, in terms of sin, yeah. Um, yet he still grew in those ways. Yes. And so we can see that, yes, in fact, that's what Adam yeah. and Eve would have you had can, to do as well. You, you can be sinless, but you still need to, there's still things that need to be accomplished. Right. To be, as John T., in John T. Rhodes' definition, perfect. Yeah. Right. And again, it goes back to the covenant of works, right? Adam failed at the covenant of works. Christ succeeded at the covenant of fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf, right? Because God still demands you know perfection you know perfect obedience to the law but now through Christ who kept who was perfectly obedient to, to the law he is he has kept that on our behalf and now you know imputes that righteousness to us so kind of go back to that idea of covenant of works and how Adam failed but the second Adam didn't fail he succeeded yeah. on our behalf in the new heavens and new earth I'm under the impression that we're still going to be um, called to cultivate, called to build and create beautiful things and do that. Um, does that mean that in John T. Rhodes' distinguished or uh, distinct uh, definition of perfected, we're not going to be there in the new creation? Or I guess how would he wrestle through that where he's saying it was perfect in the sense of innocence or sinlessness, it wasn't perfect in the sense of being perfected to the point of being finalized? Should we expect that we are going to reach that point at some point? or? That's a good question. Um, this is something that honestly, I feel like I go back and forward on. Not, not totally, because I think that um, the, the image of the new heavens and new earth um, is an image that number one, um, we have in Christ Himself, right? So Christ shows us what the resurrected state is like, at least in part. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see it uh, in terms of Christ Himself, who has a resurrected body, who does things physically, who cooks fish. For the disciples who, you know. So, so uh, far we can guarantee in the new heavens and new earth we will get to eat fish fries. <laughs> fish fries. Guys. For Wisconsin and Walleye. <laughs> Maybe, right? That's right. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Friday fish fries <laughs> still fish on. Jesus is a walleye out of the lake. He didn't realize that, you know, the Friday fish fry. It's the closest thing to heaven. I think some of us knew that. Come on, come on. I love it. That's awesome. For all you non Wisconsin listeners, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry you're not experiencing that right now. You can start. You, you can, can start, start yeah. as well. Uh, no, it's interesting that, uh, so you have that, but then you also have the, the picture of the new heavens and the new earth is that it is the garden restored mm-hmm. in a sense, right? It right. is the, the whole of the new heavens and new earth is in a sense the, the garden. Um, and so what was the garden? Well, the garden was a place where Adam and Eve were put to work it, to keep it, mm-hmm. um, to, to uh, guard and keep it. And so there's at least some of those elements. Now, at the same time, we know that 
uh, in the eternal state, there are some things like marriage, for instance, that will no longer mm -hmm. exist, at least not as they do, right? Sometimes right. people think that means there's, you know, I will forget who my wife is. Yeah, exactly, is. right. Like, yeah. it won't matter to me who, you know, I was married to. That's, I don't think that's quite right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, the idea is that, well, just as the angels are not given or, you know, take for themselves uh, wives, they, uh, so we will be in the eternal state. Mm -hmm. And so we have that too. So it, things are going to be different. Um, there's going to be a difference. And sometimes I'm, you know, as I think about that, I think, okay, um, how much... How much will we really be doing, in a sense, versus um, having most of our time taken up in, uh, mm -hmm. shall we say, leisure in the mm -hmm. in the Western and philosophical uh, traditional sense of like time devoted to those highest of things that right now in our earthly life um, most of our time is taken up in things that are not the highest, the best. Is this what you would, would you link this to, I've heard some theologians distinguish between toil and work. So like, yep, work was a pre-fall thing that we were expected to do, but toil now, working in the ground and having like resistance from that, is that what you want here or no? There's at least some of that, I think, yeah. Okay. So, so for sure, like you're saying, we see that at least in the pre-fall state in the garden, um, Adam and Eve are made to work, they're made to take dominion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also don't know, I mean, how much of that was probationary in the sense that they were going to be doing this for a time until they you know basically are then uh, uh, you know kind of given a chance like we're talking about um, they you know they were it was possible that they sin but would there be potentially a time when God would have granted that they no longer be able to right, sin right, yeah. um, does that then correspond to how they work I don't know mm -hmm. um, I don't know I, I tend to think that because the picture in scripture is a new heavens and new earth it's a it's a sanctified earth right it's a it is a, a new earth in the terms of sanctified not uh, completely destroyed and obliterated mm -hmm. that then there will be elements that we still have right elements of doing things creating things building things um, but but I think it's easy to at the same time, think of those in a really earthly, uh, worldly way that is different than mm -hmm. how it will be. And yeah. probably we can't even imagine. And, mm -hmm. you know, probably we mm -hmm. can't even really fully begin to imagine it, yeah. what it will be like. Hmm. Man. So, one thing before we're done uh, that, you know, we brought up a little bit was his, you know, reasonings for... Um, the four different reasons he gives for why, in fact, this is a uh, something that we can call a covenant. Uh, the covenant of works really is a covenant. And one of the points that I thought was really helpful that is a little bit far afield from this particular conversation, but it's really helpful hermeneutically, is um, he points out that just because one particular word is not used in a text does not mean that we should understand then that that right. text has nothing to do with it. So in terms of covenant, okay, the word covenant doesn't appear for what God is doing with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. It yeah. does appear later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but we should let the whole of Scripture help us to understand what's right. going on. And we should yeah. be able to recognize patterns rather than just um, very simplistically saying, well, this word is there or it's not there. Yeah. Um, and so therefore it has to mean 
whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a super helpful hermeneutical principle yeah. mm-hmm. to be able to go deeper into scripture than maybe a, a really uh, simplistic biblicism mm-hmm. that is easy to fall into otherwise. Yeah, and like the first thought, and it's kind of a caveat, but my first thought on that was the Trinity, right? That's a people that object to the Trinity. It's not, you know, that word's not in the Bible. It's like, okay, but we can clearly see that that truth is there, right? I'm picturing the meme right now with Michael yeah. Scott pointing at the board and saying, it's not a pyramid scheme, and Jim just like drawing the triangle <laughs> around the, tri- the pyramid scheme, and <laughs> yeah. Michael being like, I have to go make a call. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the, the yeah. Trinity example is great yeah, too. He also, the yeah. one that he uses here is brilliant too, where he's just like, sin, sin doesn't appear, the word sin, transgression yeah. doesn't, uh, yeah. iniquity doesn't appear in Genesis 2 and 3, and yet but we obviously, obviously know they did. Yeah. nobody would argue that Eve yeah. just didn't sin. Yeah, yeah. It, it just it just goes to show it's just a sleight of hand trick. Like, oh, you know, I could dismiss that doctrine because the word, this specific word that I'm looking for, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, you have to satisfy me by showing me that this specific word's in that section or in that text or in the Bible. Right. It's like that word is just used to describe what we're talking about, what mm-hmm. we see in the text, right? Like you said, the, you know, the word covenant is not in the beginning of Genesis, but mm-hmm. clearly, as we read the rest of the Bible and we see covenant used and how it's explained and what's going on around it, we're like, that's a covenant. Right. Right. Uh, you know, or when we see, you know, the Bible talk about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the triune God, right? Mm-hmm. And okay, the specific word Trinity is not in there, but mm-hmm. we can clearly see that that's what the Bible teaches. So it's just a, you know, it's just a dishonest trick, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I did like that line. Yeah, it's uh, the absence of a particular word is no argument for the absence of the idea. Exactly. The reality for which the word uh, is a covenant is shorthand. Yeah, that's cool. Exactly. Um, one of my closing thoughts on it, man, I loved his closing picture of him talking about imagining um, these two individuals, Adam and Eve, are uh, soft clay figures slowly over time hardening, and eventually their final form will be set. And like, as <laughs> somebody who sins, that's a pretty terrifying notion of yeah. like, oh man. Yeah. The question is, will they harden with their hands held aloft in worship of God, or become stony figures with fists raised in rebellion? Yeah. Good. It's like there's a, there's a point there where it's like, you you're you're done. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of like you're hardened with your fist, you know, in rebellion to God, and it, and it, gets, it just goes to show that there's a certain point. Like it talks about. You know, in Romans one, that he just gives people over to their passions and their lusts and their mm-hmm. desires. Yep. It's like, are you going to take, you know, the time of repentance? Are you going to take advantage of that and repent, or are you going to continue in your ways? And eventually, there's no hope of right. repentance at that point. And it's you not, know I mean? you know, sometimes we think of it as okay, if somebody it lives in their sin, um, they die in their sin, um, apart from Christ. Well, then once they get to the next life or when they enter into you know what's called the second death in scripture well they're really gonna be willing to repent at that point Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not true no actually they've hardened in their sin to the point where they will never though the point is that if you will not repent in this life Mm -hmm. you will never never you never would even if given the opportunity Mm -hmm. you you will hate god forever right um and so c.s lewis says that you know in the afterlife, hell mm-hmm. is the only place with the door locked from the inside. Right. The idea being that the people in hell don't want leave. God. We don't want yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want yeah. God. They don't want to leave. They, you know, yeah. they wouldn't if they had the opportunity. Yeah. Um, they just they can't and don't want to do that. And I think that that's a really, really important point. Um, yeah. 
Modest Mouse. If you've ever listened to Modest Mouse. Oh my gosh, yeah. Modest Mouse. They have a song (laughs) where they have a line that says, you wasted life, why wouldn't you waste the afterlife? Now, those guys are absolute pagans. (laughs) Excellent theologians. Excellent theologians. (laughs) Highly recommend them. We should do our cover of, uh, what's the most popular song they do? Uh, Float. We're going to do a cover of Float next time. Float, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. no, they are, uh, it's, they're right, though, about that. Yeah, mm. you wasted life. Why wouldn't you waste the effort? Right. Why do you think that something would yeah. change uh, drastically about you if you're unwilling to repent now? Right. Um, no, actually, there's it's one yeah. there's one time appointed for man to die, and then comes the judgment, mm-hmm. and that's it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And, and when we think about, you know, hell, right, it's, it's a total removal of God's common grace. Right? It's a total removal of his restraint on sinners. So when sinners are, you know, when God totally removes his common grace, when he totally removes his hand of restraint, right, that's that's what Romans 1 is talking about, right? He, he gave them, okay, he's like, all right, I give you over to your passions. I'm, you know, I'm removing my hand of restraint. And what happens? They delve more in, into more and more gross immorality. Mm-hmm. And so... When if that's what hell is, right? He, you know, eternal conscious torment, removing all common grace, removing all restraint. Those again, those people that have hardened their hearts, are just going to continue to delve more and more, you know, wickedness, and then they're going to have to live with each other, as they're all delve into more and more wickedness. So, you know. great.